Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, diet time is here. That's right. We're talking a nightmare on Elm Street on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal Patrick Hamilton. Coming to you once again from 1428 Elm Street. This is the Kill by Kill podcast where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film the characters we're going to unpack all the goriest of details for a nightmare on elm street 1984 directed by the one and only wes craven in the hopes that a dead teenager's end is just the beginning of the jokes we can make about them and as always there is only one person that i trust that if i tell her you gotta wake me up at midnight she won't end up dying in a blood fountain the one and the only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? Well, I'm good, but that's that's probably because I would not, in fact, be waiting up to watch Miss Nude America. I, <laughs> I, I am I am not the target audience for 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 that sort of presentation. First of all, you're missing fantastic international costumes. Secondly, the talent portion is dynamite. <sighs> Be that as it may, I, I, I think <laughs> I, I think that you could probably rely on me to help capture the killer more and more than Nancy was able to rely on on poor departed Glenn. This is true. None none of those velvet sweatpants really helped him in the end. But we will get to that. And I don't want to alarm you, Gina. But we are not alone. That's right. We have a special guest. She is the host of Elm Street Radio. She's the producer of the documentary Fred Heads. She's a Nancy Thompson super fan and cosplayer who just had a fantastic write-up on her in the latest issue of Fangoria. She is the one, the only, Deandra Laser. How are you doing, Deandra? Hi, guys. I'm so excited to be here. I've been loving listening to your episodes on all the kills and such from the Nightmare films. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so happy to have you. If anyone that we have talked to so far, I think you you could quite possibly be the best expert when it comes to A Nightmare on Elm Street that we've spoken to so far, especially about Nancy. So I must ask, although people can read it for themselves, the latest issue of Fangoria, but I wanted to ask you on this here air for those who are sad individuals who would not happen to have a, 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 a subscription to Fangoria. What was your first introduction to the Nightmare on Elm Street series? Well, I'm a bit of a late bloomer to horror. I grew up in a household where we didn't really watch any scary movies. And if I did, I was either looking at it through my fingers and not really allowed by my parents, or I saw it at a friend's house. But I, like like Heather says in New Nightmare, every kid knows who Freddy is. He's like Santa Claus. So I grew up knowing of Freddy and I didn't actually watch any of his films until I was much older. I'd seen little clips like about Marge at the very end of the first movie. It was always on TV and it always scared me. But I had a dream when I was actually in high school that Freddie was after me and I woke up and suddenly I was really curious. So I went to my local video store and I picked up Freddie's Dead out of all the films and I watched that continuously that summer nonstop. And so that was my very, very first look at A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then eventually I worked my way up to the first movie where I fell in love with Nancy. So I think we'll get to this over the course of it, but was there anything in particular about 
was this the first horror franchise that you were really drawn to or had you sampled elsewhere and you landed on this and you're like, Oh, I, I found my people. That's a good question. It, it, my cousin was a big fan of the universal monsters. He actually still is. And I just recently discovered he has a small universal monsters collection, which made me super proud, even though he came before I did as far as scary things go. Mm-hmm. But I'm born in October, so I was always surrounded by Halloween at my birthday. Uh-huh. And I was always very curious about it, but I was always very terrified. Like I said, not really allowed to watch it. So I guess that kind of made me even more curious. But I watched a couple of his Universal Monster movies, and my favorite was the original Wolfman mm-hmm. that I loved very, very much. But at, beyond that, I really didn't watch horror movies at all. I just watched a couple of those universal monster movies. And even then like Bella Lugosi's Dracula was too scary for me. So, <laughs> but I loved the Wolfman and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and the creature from the black lagoon. And even, even a little bit of jaws growing up, I used to want to watch those all the time. I was very obsessed with sharks because of jaws, but I was never like I am with a nightmare on Elm street at all. Very interesting. Well, Let's then get into it. Let's rejoin the action. Who's still left alive at this point in the movie, you might be asking yourself? Almost everyone is still alive. We've only had two official deaths in this entire thing. So there's really no point in listing off the vast majority of individuals who are still on this mortal coil, as so few have been dusted off of it. So almost Everyone is alive with the exception of the aesthetic beauty of 1428 Elm Street as Nancy's wine mom, Joyce, has put bars on all the windows. And and locked it from Um, the inside, which... That sort of security decision leaves a lot to be desired. The lock you into the, the house that you live in aesthetic. Eventually, Nancy does get into her own house with the sort of attitude that says, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Uh, we, we, she has blossomed since leaving Venice, and she is very much in charge of what is happening to her in this moment. This is where we get that great, great Joyce entrance. She has an unlit cigarette, not for long, and every time she enters a scene, somewhere in the world... The theme from Dynasty plays. Again, Joyce is in her pajamas. The sun has barely set. What is happening with her and the inability to wear daytime clothes? I think she's just a hot mess. You know, (laughs) first of all, she's just been drinking the whole time. And I don't ever think once in the movie that she makes a sentence that's even like, totally coherent. I think she kind of mumbles her way through a nightmare on Elm street. And so when she shows up at this point, it's just like, there you are. That's your true form. You're not in the, the suit you had in the very beginning. There you are with your robe and your alcohol and your cigarette, your hair is all messed up. Your makeup's all funky. And poor oh. Nancy at this point, she's really just like, what is my mother? What, <laughs> what is going on here? And even though the, the whole message of getting locked inside of the house is pretty poignant as far as Wes goes, because now she's inside her mind and all of mm-hmm. that. But I just love how much of a hot mess Marge is in this movie. <laughs> she is just ridiculous. Now, I will warn you, we will constantly refer to Marge as Joyce because we decided she doesn't look like a Marge to us. No. She does look like a Joyce Mm -hmm. 
who probably drinks four to five glasses of wine when you invite everyone over for a cookie swap. Just oh, her, so you know. her bottles keep getting bigger and bigger. Like she pulls this one bottle out of the, the linen closet. It looks like that looks like she got at the Costco. It's like a Russian nesting doll for vodka. <laughs> but every time she opens one, it's a larger bottle. It's magic. It really is. When she saunters into the scene, the only thing missing is some sort of jazz bait and jazz hands and a spotlight and someone else saying, Dakota, six. It is (laughs) Chicago, practically, what is happening here. Bob Fosse should be in the background smoking furiously and going, I love it. And it's kind of like a surprise because when Nancy comes in, she's like, mother, and you're half expecting because now there are bars on the windows. I mean, God knows she's crazy, except her crazy is like toned down crazy. She just comes over there and it's like, it's like the post-sex cigarette light up and (laughs) (laughs) she takes a big swig. She's just stepped off the dryer and now Nancy's home. (laughs) And she's just like, she's just like security. (laughs) Security. I mean, she she hits her mark hard. She's one step away from sliding in like Tom Cruise. It might be my favorite Joyce moment in the entire thing. But uh, again, the, the sun has not set. And yet Joyce decides you need to come with me down to the cellar. And when your drunk mom says we got to go to the cellar, it never ends well. We're going to need to keep track of something over the course of of this season two of talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. And that is the legend of Freddy Krueger. Because the backstory given here by Joyce is pretty outlandish. And this is before we get to the whole insane asylum nun mom part. The bastard son of a a hundred men or something. Yeah. Yes. And we're not even there yet. And things are already off the rails because Freddie is described by her as, quote, a filthy child murderer, like there's a clean cut one out there. And then she says that he killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood that she knew. That is a really high number. I just want to let all of our younger listeners and considering my advanced age, that means almost everyone listening to this. I want to assure them that in the 80s, people did pay attention to when children died. They didn't, like, just brush it off. Yeah, <laughs> and what's a, like, what's a neighborhood in terms of where they live? That's, like, what, maybe a three-block radius? So that would be, like, all the children. Super like, small town. Their high school must only be that English class that Lynn Shea is teaching. <laughs> That's it. That's all that's left. And, and you know, the thing that I think is so funny is as she goes on to describe Freddie and we kind of know him as this loner in this small town, yeah. you know, that's so Midwest America. I mean, you know, Midwest later on, because like you mentioned before, palm trees, that if he's a loner who lives or works in a boiler room and has access to this boiler room, you're like, how many creepy guys we got? Uh, we got three creepy guys. All right. Who... Frequently visits a boiler room. Uh, quite possibly this one, dude. You know, I feel like it would be so easy to narrow it down in this small town. As who to made who his could own? Possibly be taking these children. Who, who made his own owner. glove with razor blades on the end of it? Maybe, maybe round up that guy. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk to the guy He's, with the razor glove. 
Who's He's going the, down to Pop's hardware store, like buying all this, <laughs> all these knives and things? Maybe it's him. Hey, Pop, how many guys have come in here and asked for loose razor blades and switch blades <laughs> that they can just dismantle and make into a blade glove? Right around kid five, that's kind of an all points bulletin thing here. Once you're over 20, the FBI absolutely has to be involved in this. This is it's crazy. Maybe I'm a little bit you know, selfish, but I think after maybe the fifth or sixth child, I, I think we're just getting a U-Haul and, you know, you know, pulling up stakes and leaving. I'm not going to yeah. hang around to to capture the killer. Especially by the time he reached 17. I mean, yeah. by that point. You're, yeah, that, that would say to me that the, only, digits? that the only kids left in the neighborhood would be the Nancy, Glenn, and Tina. That would be like the only <laughs> children left in the neighborhood. That is absolutely, there's no way Rod is from that neighborhood. Oh, no, no. Uh, he was obviously imported uh, <laughs> directly from Philadelphia. I was going to say from, from from Mr. Cotter's English class to, to, to Ohio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he was in the math class. <laughs> How he never tells Freddie to put something up his nose with a rubber hose, I'll, I'll never know. But that was that was a different episode. I think we may have the core of the problem here as Joyce continues her very drunken monologue. Uh, Freddie was freed on a technicality having to do with somebody signing the search warrant wrong, <laughs> meaning the police had no evidence that he had killed 20 plus kids that's, that's, beyond that's, what they seized in the initial search of the overly wet boiler room. I, I'm not I'm not an attorney. Um, I <laughs> don't think he would just be able to. I think they're confusing it with um, double jeopardy. Where yeah. it's like, well, the, you know, they had to let him go. It's not like they could arrest him again. No, of course they could arrest him again. I mean, why Why would they just have let him go? I'm like, well, sorry, nothing we can do. Child killer tree. This is not how courtrooms work. I mean, this is how uh, horror uh, movie plots work. But it is not how the court system operates, no matter how broken it happens to be at any given time. I don't care how uh, famous the judge get and how fat the lawyers get. Um, which, why are the lawyers getting so fat? This seems like a very cut and dry case. They, they weren't in court that long. Well, they they, you know, a, worked, they worked long hours and ate a lot of fast food. It paid off because they got Freddie off scot-free, uh, which ended up causing the local PTA, I guess in <laughs> that PTA, must be a they're not real, fucking. They're not fucking around. <laughs> they're not fucking around. Small and, town. The quiet <laughs> ones you got to worry about. <laughs> They all get together, according to Joyce, and follow Freddy to this, again, overly wet boiler room and douse it in gasoline and light it and watch it burn. This is important. They watch it burn. So they have zero fear that they are going to be caught by the police because I assume that Lieutenant Thompson is in on this crime. I would imagine so, yeah. That that would cause a fissure in a marriage. I'm just, but how come Joyce and Lieutenant Thompson are the only ones who get divorced as a result? Well, no, remember Tina's, uh, you know, Tina's mom had a boyfriend. What happened to Tina's dad? Oh, you you saw Tina's mom, right? But yeah, I mean, all all the parents kind of look a little, little miserable. Like they're there, and and I, With the exception I, of Glenn's mom, like Glenn's mom looks, looks very fine. nice. She oh yeah, she's doing all right. Dad's an asshole, but 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 again, this leads to the question of even after it's over, I'm not sticking around town, and like no. you know looking, you know just going back to normal, you know seeing these people at the you know 
the local school board meeting or at the shop and yeah, you know, the shop and stop. Yeah, remember that 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 man we incinerated? Yeah, that was great. Got <laughs> the job great. done. I, I would be like, yeah, no, I, I'm gonna just you know pack my you know, I'm not even gonna pack my things. I, I'm just going to leave with the clothes on my back. I, I'm gonna <laughs> haul ass like the freelings. <laughs> just watch that that house fold in the background of, in the rear view mirror. And keep on trucking, baby. Yeah, I mean, I basically my response would be, good luck with all that. <laughs> it's hard to make small talk after you've murdered a man in cold blood. I don't care how much he had it coming. But it is hard to go, hey, hey, Joan, how are things at the office? Um, yes, I do remember when we burned that man alive. No, I will not be having cookie swap this year because last year you got too drunk. I mean, I guess that they just didn't investigate Freddy's nightmare chamber burned down. They're just like, well, all right, I guess, you know, guess that makes the job easier for us. Yeah, I guess everybody just kind of gave up after that. They thought, hey, well, you know what? We got it taken care of. No one else is going to do anything. Just wipe our hands off of it and take more swigs of our tequila. Well, a guy who just murdered 20 plus children got off scot-free. So something tells me that the police department here in the sort of Elm Street part of town, not exactly the sharpest tools in the shed. Well, yeah, I mean, we have, we we have later and we have later in in the movie when, when Nancy has smashed her window and is screaming for help. The, the, the police officer is like, well, maybe I should go get her dad. Oh, maybe you think (laughs) you should go get her dad. Oh, okay. He's, oh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it because that's a whole nother monologue. If, the person who uh, was captured after murdering my child was then just burned alive and not sent to jail. I, I might also take the gasoline can over to the police station right after the boiler room. That's, then light I'm, up a cigarette. And yes. Take a swig of your giant vodka bottle. Your gallon bottle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just burn it down, salt the earth, start over new. Because these people be because I think that the police force was chosen by raffle. Um, I don't think I don't think anybody, you know, you know, save save Mr. Thompson has any sort of police training. We, we have a, a coroner who can't who can't tolerate the sight of a dead body. Well, there's not even a body involved. It's just a this lot is, of blood. Let's cut to Glenn's bedroom where we find him listening to his stereo stereo via headphones and watching TV at the same time. Meanwhile, above his head is a uh, plush of a vulture just perched on his bedpost, which is very cute. Um, I thought for a minute that he had a poster of the blues brothers, but I, I, (laughs) and upon second, you know, second perusal, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I can't identify a lot in that bedroom as opposed to Nancy's where there's at least identifiable nightmare objects here. It's an ephemera. I can't quite focus on anything in particular with one exception beyond the plush vulture. And that is Johnny Johnny Depp's navel, like (laughs) which I gaze into and it slightly (laughs) hypnotizes me. Um, And then I remember how he is now. And that breaks that fucking spell real fast. Uh, I, on his wall, there is some sort of handmade cat meme plaster to the wall where it's a cat's head taped onto a white page with, with a lot of green paisleys drawn on it in marker. And what is happening with the cat memes in this 
fucking movie, Gina. I was this just is just gonna say. I, I have no idea. I don't know. They're like they're, Freddy? I don't know. they're they're like weird little like like Easter eggs for the audience to find. They're like uh, when you go to Disney World and you look for the Mickey Mouse heads. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the second episode in a row where we have found taped to someone's wall a crazy cat meme. And the last one was a doctor, and this one is a teenage boy. It's just, it's very odd to have multiple cat posters of varying quality and size in multiple locations within a single movie. Has, 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 you know, unfortunately, we can no longer ask Wes Craven about this. No, I really, really want to. Uh, <laughs> if anyone happens to know... Anyone who was involved in this production could tell me why it was so obsessed with posters involving cats. Please let me know. But wait, there's more about on-the-wall art about to come. Just time out on that conversation. <laughs> We're not done yet. Okay. I, 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 think I, uh, I think we have matching notes here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the phone convo between Nancy and Glenn... Uh, that occurs here, I think is actually the best example of building the relationship between the two of them. I really wish there was something like this that was woven into the first and second acts, because this is the first time I buy them as friends, neighbors, kids who have fallen in love with one another, or as, as in love as you can be when you're a teenager. Th- this I completely buy. Uh, between the two of them it feels real i think it's the best acted scene between them and they're not in the same space i i do think it's uh he he does a good job of being baffled at the idea that that you know, she'll pull this this child killer out of her dream and he'll just you know simply just blat him over the head with a baseball bat <laughs> or punch him you know i mean yes. she, she, she's just very just you know yeah this is my plan this is what we're gonna do and he's just kind of like you know mouth slightly you know open like uh okay okay i I guess so (laughs) he's willing to kind of go along with it um but you also kind of get the inkling that nancy's sort of in charge of their relationship and glenn is okay with that she also mentions that he's the quote-unquote jock which is not something that we had seen in any other portion. I of thought the movie. not. I was like, that had not been established. And I mean, before he was wearing like these, you know, you know, soft boy, you know, little, you know, argyle, you know, sweater vest, and now he's got the the like you eighties know, jock bully little cropped shirt and the jockey pants. And I'm like, I'm like, is this? Were they just testing different different outfits for him to wear? Yeah, um, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's I mean, he's thin, but he's he's not really athletic. He doesn't really. I mean, the only thing I think we get is the jacket that Nancy wears in the very beginning, which is like a letterman's jacket. But even then, you're there's nothing about Glenn that screams jock. But I guess maybe he was just the oddball out. I mean, I could buy that he's in baseball. You don't have to have a giant stature. There's plenty of, of ramrod thin baseball players in high school uh, that would be okay with but she she says it in a way like oh it, come on dum dum we all know that you're this massive jock and you're like uh we have gotten none of this <laughs> that that would be information you would need to establish uh 
everyone in this entire movie, and I would be stunned to hear that this was not filmed in or around Easter time because there are so many muted pastels on display. They must have haunted the fucking racks just after Easter and said, anything that's soft and looks like you might wear it after church to a dinner, buy it. Especially for Nancy. That poor uh, girl's wardrobe is just... yeah. Oh, her outfit at the end is just something. It's just like. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it leaves a lot to be desired, but it also doesn't feel manufactured. So I think that's kind of the appeal of it. She feels like a normal quote unquote girl next door because she isn't ultra glamorous. She isn't otherworldly. She yeah. seems like someone you are going to school with or have been to school with. And that makes her more approachable than some of the later horror films that we would see post scream. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that really permeates throughout the entire film is despite the cat posters and the vulture with the tie around its neck and the crazy outfits that make just no sense. It is very real because not everything in somebody's room, especially as a teenager, is put together or it matches. I mean, in, in so many later films, horror films, rather, not necessarily even the nightmare films, because I think they do a pretty good job of representing teenagers. But as you look at horror over the years, everything matches and everything's clean and everything's all put together. But yeah. in the nightmare films, there's just little bits and pieces here that are totally awry and don't make any sense, but that's why they seem so natural and relatable is because they feel like a real teen's wardrobe at the time or their room even. And I think that's one of the reasons why it connected so solidly with its core audience at the time it came out and, and for years afterwards, they, they feel a lot more real and there's a lot more to grab onto in terms of character. They're, we're just given more time with the nightmare characters than we, than we would be with Friday the 13th. They're just different animals. Um, in this regard, what I really like coming out of this conversation is Nancy is in danger, but she never is portrayed as a damsel in distress. No. She's an active combatant. She is involved in this thing, this, this mystery, the supernatural problem that only she can solve. And it doesn't feel like it's passively happening to her. It feels like I'm, I'm involved and I'm going to figure a way out of this, as opposed to some of the other films that we have watched over the years. Well, yeah. well Nancy's Joy- very strategic in everything that she does. I remember a lot of people talk about Laurie Strode and I was never a huge fan of Laurie in the first movie, even though I love her in the new movie. Uh, Maybe it's because she reminds me of Nancy, but in any case, Jamie Lee Curtis has said that she felt that Laurie was more of a survivor than being any kind of heroine because Nancy is proactive. She's very much different. And that is such a, a, an intent that was an intention on Wes because his daughter I mean, Heather talks about it and I am Nancy and the daughter said, you know, why, why are all these girls always falling down? And Nancy doesn't fall. She doesn't just wait to be rescued. She looks at everything around her and she's like, no one's going to help me. I have to do this myself. I have to figure it out. I've got to put a plan together and I'm not just going to like pick up 
the baseball bat, even though she allots that to Glenn. She's got like this booby traps book and she's got all these little bits and pieces that she's just going to put all over her house, potentially, eventually, whenever she goes after Freddie. And she's ready for the fight. She's ready to mess him up. And and she's not just going to pick up a knife and, and go at it. She's very, very strategic. Well, I mean, Joyce manages to rise from her Bacardi haze long enough to to <laughs> say something you know, almost coherent in, in that Nancy can face things, which mm-hmm. which you know if you know, if, the, if the parents of Elm Street had been able to you know, face earlier that they killed a man. <laughs> I mean, you know, granted, a man who definitely had it coming. I mean, no one's going to argue about that. But I mean, I don't quite get how. Joyce feels that the the kids had known sooner about what happened to Freddie that that none of this would have happened. I, I don't yeah. quite I, I don't quite follow that trajectory, but but you know she is correct that that rather than living in denial, you know in in the the you know the bottom of a liquor bottle, you, Nancy just sort of you know faces things head on and and you know and and you know, lot with you know, with logic and bravery. And that's something that's you don't like, really, you don't really see. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. It's like she looked at her parents and said, that's what I don't want to be. And she learned from their faults. And now she's building herself based on, you know, the, the things that she wants to be that they aren't. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, we see Joyce uh, tuck uh, Nancy in here at some point. Um, and <laughs> this is kind of a fake out. Um, she picks up a good three different coffee urns and takes them out of the room. And we discover that Nancy has snuck a different coffee maker and hidden it under her nightstand. It's already it's, it's already like, filled. Like you would think you would think that, that it's uh, on the entire time. You wouldn't think that you would have thought the Joyce might have smelled the, the, the fresh brewed coffee. But uh I mean I, I gotta say that that again, as someone who's had sleeping problems, I think that this movie wildly overestimates how effective caffeine is um yeah i I don't think she's on nancy mentions when she's talking to glenn that she is on day seven of not sleeping and and you are i mean i've never gone that long without sleep i think my longest is maybe 48 hours and and i was just like i was like i was just pretty much incoherent by by that point i mean i was i went through you know a second wind a third wind a fourth wind and i just i was you you hearing colors and seeing music so i don't even know how she's even (laughs) functioning on day seven without sleep and and i don't think a little cup of coffee is, is going to be doing it for her at that point she should basically just be like comatose at that point yeah i think the one she thinks she has going for her is adrenaline but yes there's a bit of movie magic and uh, you know we kind of uh we'll let that uh be you know things that can only happen in the movies as uh, oh it doesn't ruin anything i just i just thought it was you know <laughs> You know, funny that she's just kind of sipping on her coffee like she's, you know, on her, you know, you know, stuck in rush hour traffic. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure if anything other than, you know, pure cocaine at this point will be able to keep her awake. I think maybe the effects were absorbed into her hair. So everything that didn't appear in her personality got absorbed into her hair. And that's why it got so big. So here's a question I have for, for you, Deandra, mm-hmm. as a person who cosplays as Nancy in public. Now, I, I, I don't, 
how do you, how can you possibly approach the volume and the depth of texture of hair that is on display in this movie as Nancy? Because there are moments where I'm looking at this and I'm like, she's off of a fucking romance novel. There's so <laughs> much hair happening. It's so voluminous. And uh, at, when she's in the police station, she pulls it back off of her face and I'm like, oh my God, how, how much, like, does everyone in that room just look at that hair and go, can I have some, can I have all of it? So how do you replicate hair like that when you're trying to embody Nancy out and about? To, to be honest, you don't, you do your best, but unless you have a weave, which I had a weave wig thing when we made the fan film in the opening scene. But after that, it's not as wild because Heather's hair is way bigger and thicker than mine is. Even though mine is a fuzzy mess, the best thing I could do is just tease the crap out of it, put a crap ton of hairspray in it and just make it go wild. And, you know, for most people, they're like, wow, that's some big hair you got. But me knowing Nancy, I'm like, yeah, yeah, have you seen the movie? (laughs) Like that, that hair is a whole other level. It's got its own zip code. It's its own character. It has its own credit. Like it is a massive amount of hair. I'm surprised she doesn't have neck problems because that's a lot. (laughs) That's why she cut it off. That's why Heather's (laughs) lived with short hair since 1994. (laughs) Um, So uh, let's talk about Glenn again. We meet Glenn's mom. She apparently is a normal functional human being. She's probably the only normal functional human being over the age of 40 given any lines in this entire film. Yeah. Uh, But just before you think, Oh, Glenn's got it. Good. That's when we meet dad. Dad is drinking domestic beer from a can, which is just gross. And He's also got a sweet gold necklace collection just brimming under that collar. That chest hair. Don't forget the chest hair. Very reminiscent of uh, the, I'm going to, of, uh, is it Glenn Ford? Yes. From um, Happy Birthday to Me? Yes. Who has that crazy disco medallion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, happy birthday to me. I love it. I own two copies of it now. That's how obsessed with that stupid movie I am. Okay. Um, but we, uh, meanwhile, across the street, uh, when Nancy is trying to sneak out, she notices that Joyce is hidden another giant bottle of vodka and she's stashed it in the amazing Technicolor dream towel closet. <laughs> yeah, they you, don't you, own a single towel that matches and they put <laughs> all of them next to one another. So you, you might be blinded by their brilliance. Yeah. Joyce has kind of done away with cups entirely. At, at this point, she's, she's just swigging this down like 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 a character in a Tom Waits song. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, this is when uh, uh, Nancy tries to call Glenn. Uh, Glenn's dad says, "Enough of this shit. I've had it. You're a weirdo. I don't want you hanging out with my t- with which, my son." Which again, I mean, did are we missing some some pages here from the script? Because 
at no point this in, in, up, up till this scene has Nancy had any interaction with Glenn's parents. Now, I mean, yeah. it's a little, it's a little, you know, not nice at the whole thing is, oh, well, well, she's crazy. Her best friend just got murdered. You know, it's yeah. just like, I mean, it's, I guess maybe there's some rumors going around that she's not sleeping. And, and of course the mom's a drunk, but I mean, again, you know, in a town that probably should still be a little bit on edge with the whole, you know, 20 children being murdered. And then the, the person who killed them, you know, just, you know, Oh, he, he, his, his little shack burned down. Imagine that, (laughs) you know, that when someone is murdered again, that, you know, things are going to be a little, people are going to be a little tense. So I'm not really sure why he's like, you know, we, well, you know, this one's cuckoo. I don't want her son hanging around anymore, around her anymore. Well, all right. I, I don't know where you came to that conclusion, but fine. Especially yeah. after you think about Nancy and Glenn having seen each other for potentially a while, because it just seems like, you know, when she shrugs him off at the very beginning, Glenn's like, oh man, again, kind of thing. But it feels like they've known each other. And you'd think that his parents know Nancy as having been this pretty good girl. And they wouldn't be like, oh man, I feel so bad for Nancy. But at least the mom is. The dad just like, I don't want to hang around my son anymore. I'm just going to drink my beer and have my chest hair. Like, it's really... <laughs> I just can't get over how, like, unsympathetic he is. There must be something that he doesn't like about them. Maybe it's the mom. Maybe, maybe Joyce was a slut. Who knows? And he knows it. I don't know. Who knows? I would have expected that kind of behavior from maybe the mom, not as much the dad, I guess. I don't know. Well, It's It's very interesting. I think he is the most annoying person in this movie, even even more than Parker or Garcia, who can't the, can't get their crap together, he just oh, he's such an asshole. I hate him. Well, there seems to be a, a a a running theme of you know, and, and obviously this isn't this isn't unique just to this movie of absolutely in every way possible ineffectual parents, like yes. almost with the with the again with the exception of Glenn's mom, who seems like a a, a you know perfectly fine person. Every parent in this is drunk or or too distracted with the new boyfriend or just incompetent uh it this or or just kind of you know, or distant and again you know you would think that I I hate to keep running over this 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 plot point again but if you you inexplicably choose to remain in a town raising your child where 20 children have been murdered you're going to be like super parent to them. You're not going to let them out of your sight. You're going to need, you know, if you're single, you're not going to let yourself get tied down with another partner. You're certainly not going to stagger around the house, you know, you, you half drunk at, at, you know, at breakfast, but everybody, every parent is sort of like, you know, well, we did this and now we don't know how to live with ourselves. So, you know, I guess we'll just, you know, keep our children at arm's length and not know how to raise them properly. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. yeah, you're doing it. You're doing a great job here, parents. I mean, maybe you, you're better off just, you know, you know, not bothering trying to trying to kill the child killer because it didn't do any of you any good. Yeah, they mention it in Never Sleep Again that basically one of the things about these movies is that from the parents' perspective, they say that they're trying to raise their children the best that they can, and it would seem that way, but they're just so terribly flawed. And I guess it's because they barbecued Freddy Krueger. But 
I mean, just constantly between the drinking and between being so judgmental and having parents, you know, who sleep around, it's beginning to feel like a Disney movie because the the family unit is just so broken. And 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 the the parents just constantly seem to be flawed. But I guess that's the whole point of it is that they think they're doing the best, but obviously being the audience and watching everyone who is an adult is just constantly screwing up. And the kids are the only one who, the only ones who seem to know what's going on, or at least, you know, Nancy for the most part. Yeah. I mean, that, that's to the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, no, uh, Gina, go on. Well, like the part I mean, we're skipping ahead a little bit, but when Nancy calls and speaks to her father, even then he's sort of like, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll be there. Don't worry about it. You know, Oh, I, I got to take this other call. Goodbye. And, you know, he's just, just yeah. pushing her off the phone. And it's like, you know, my man, her boyfriend just was just murdered. You you, you can give her two minutes to, to hear what she has to say and, and to to yeah. reassure her that, that you will be there to help her when you, when you need her to. But he's still yeah, sort of... little blood isn't going. Yeah, anymore. he's still furrowing his brow and looking exasperated and, oh, I got to deal with this shit again. And it's like... Yeah, he didn't even say, oh, I'm sorry about your boyfriend. It was like, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you are. You, you, you need to go to some parenting classes, Mr. Thompson, oh. because you are very, very bad at the most basic aspects of parenting such as knowing how to comfort your child knowing how to be there for your child to take their word for something he just fails on every possible fundamental level which brings us ever so briefly to the odd confluence of events where a nightmare on elm street rides just alongside stephen king's it and you have to wonder who is influencing who here is wes craven subtly influence like does that have influence over how stephen king's it has the origins of a town that is cursed with a child murderer and the parents sort of you know abide by sacrificing their children every 29 years or because it's a weird like they're both pulling out of the same zeitgeist at the same time you have this villain who can enter a person's dreams and use their greatest fears against somebody and it, they subtly bounce off of one another it's just the weirdest zeitgeistiest thing that has ever happened in horror where you have two very iconic uh you know things one a film the other a novel that have so many weird parallels between the two of them and yet they were both born absolutely independent of one another on opposite ends of the country so it's just they 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 both they both saying have some of the exact same themes and, and parents act the same way and the town's kind of cursed and oh it all goes together right, but listen we could talk about philosophy and 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 how uh, we are all pulling from this, the same creative forces and, and putting them into the world. But we have to talk about Bob Shea and the fact that he calls the TV station that Glenn is listening to KRGR Kruger. Ah. <laughs> uh, Glenn <laughs> is, uh, is listening to uh, an album. He's watching TV, but not, none of it seems to keep him awake. And guess what? 
he gets pulled down into his own bed. And it, it, and what we did not know about Glenn up until now is that he is made up of 500% blood and 10% hairspray. <laughs> well, we also, you forgot to mention, he, he, he's fallen asleep with the television balanced on his crotch, which, which I, I don't know how one sleeps comfortably. Yeah. But, but also I, I, I've been thinking about this. I've been just, just you waiting on pins and needles to ask this question. And, sure. and it's really good that we have, we have a Nightmare on Elm Street expert, but. What do we think happened to Glenn? <laughs> I think he got blended in the but bed. The, that's still that's the only thing of, that makes sense. Still a lot of blood. It's like it's like it's, the, so the, it's like the Overlook Hotel elevators opened into his bedroom. It, it, it just, <laughs> it's like a chocolate fountain, but but with blood. It's just there's so much blood. I, I forgot how long that bit goes on for. And but the it, thing is that they they there was a deleted scene where Johnny Depp is pulled back out of the bed, but he's still uh, just the regular Glenn, except dead and covered in blood. So maybe that's why they took it out because he was supposed to be blended. Most people say he was eaten by the bed. Obviously not because he was regurgitated, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's like he was juiced. He was juiced or something. Yeah. <laughs> he was liquefied. The The bed hit frappe. It's, I mean, it's a horrifying, you know, because again, you don't know what, what happened to him. And, and it's just been like, you know, on the back of my mind ever since watching this movie, like 30 years ago, what, what happened? I think it's better that we don't know the specifics because the mystery of it and the way everyone from the police force to the coroner, to the ambulance people react to it makes it so much more horrifying than if they just told us that Freddie crunched him into a small cube and all the liquid flew out. It is nice that Craven was able to reuse the same gimbal system for Tina's death here. The, this is accomplished not by forcing uh, blood out, but by turning the room all the way upside down and letting the blood spill out onto the ceiling. And later, when uh, Glenn's mom walks in, you can start to see the room tilt because the blood on the lamp starts to go sideways. And I, I remember, I think it might have been in Robert's book, where he talks about when that blood, they, it went too far and it started to come out like the window. And all of a sudden it goes all over the electrical equipment. Everyone's getting electrocuted. Heather and Robert are right there and he like grabs her and they run away really, really fast. But it makes for a cool effect. It was just way more terrifying for the people who are actually on the set at the time. Uh, so this is... Where we get into a little bit of nitpickiness, I don't know how this this makes that big of a deal, but they, they start calling out times. So uh, Bob Shea says on KRGR that it's it's midnight. They're turning off their program. When Nancy uh, talks to Lieutenant Thompson, she says it's 1210. Uh, come and bust down the door in 20 minutes. That would be 1230. So Glenn died around 12. And then... <laughs> And then all of these people, all these first responders showed up to the house to see a liquefied Glenn in less than 10 minutes. That's one hell of a response time. Well, they also it also suggests that she puts all those booby traps together in less than 10 minutes. And and, oh, and, and has that's a hundred, my favorite part. And, and has <laughs> and has a heart to heart conversation with her mother. <laughs> yes, uh, she has a heart to heart where she's told that she has the ability to 
look at things face to face, but then at some point she has to turn away in yet again, Chekhov's turn away from that monster. Um, And we of course get the predator slash home alone booby trap montage that those films would later borrow from a nightmare on Elm street. Um, Cut to Glenn's bedroom uh, where another detective exits the room and wipes the soles of his shoes. These are the kind of procedural mistakes that get a child murderer set free, people. Where's some booties on your yeah, fucking shoes? I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they, they have stuff you can put on your shoes for exactly that reason. Yes! Don't walk into blood puddles as a, as a biggie for me. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say it. The whole town of Springwood kind of brought this on themselves by the <laughs> police force just being so freaking careless. Yes. <laughs> They had it coming. They had it coming. Uh, So Nancy settles down for a long winter's nap, and it turns out that her digital watch has a thing that tells time, and that's a little robotic voice, uh, which was not a thing that watches possessed at a time, but that's okay, movie magic. Uh, Now, in her dream, Nancy goes to the basement, which um, we then discover one of... I thought last week was the craziest background discovery that we were going to hit in this movie. (laughs) But hold on to your hats, because what we did not know is that pinned up on the wall in the Thompson basement is some sort of zarape with dogs playing pool painted onto it. I I wrote down it was a tapestry. I I think it was a a dogs playing poker (laughs) tapestry. It, it definitely, it definitely looks like something that you buy. I don't know if either of you ever been to, to Las Vegas, but there's an enormous, enormous souvenir shop, like mm. outside of the city, and it sells this kind of thing. You have dogs playing poker, tapestries. What is that hiding that you would put it up on your wall? I don't care that it's the basement. Someone might see it, and we did. The audience of this very famous film. And honestly, does Mr. Thompson seem like someone that would own a, a any sort of image of dogs playing poker? <laughs> no, but that, that's the thing. I thought they were playing poker, too. When you zoom on in on it, they're playing pool. It's a knockoff of a knockoff on a blanket. <laughs> I didn't even know they were playing pool. I thought they were playing poker. You, 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 you've, shaken my, you've shaken my whole world. They're not sitting down at a round table. They're actually watching one of the greyhounds manipulate a pool stick, which is not something they can do. Dogs don't have thumbs. Well, you you know what else? What? Cats can't can't, uh, operate (laughs) streetcars. And yet. And and yet. Hawaiian shirts, nevertheless. Oh, my God. In a Hawaiian shirt? Oh, this... I I just I didn't think that this would be such a bounty. I really thought we would just be talking about character stuff and that the insane details would end with Friday the 13th. Oh no 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 no. Says Wes Craven, master of horror, wait till you see this blanket with dogs painted on it. Well, I mean, this their basement, the Thompson's basement is a little bit of a murder basement itself. I mean, yes. they, they, they've got a furnace, which is definitely large enough to put a human body in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also has Freddy's glove. It yes. has Freddy's Contains glove. a just, murder weapon. Just, just you know, put in there for safekeeping like you would do with your prom corsage. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, they Stored have like it's a wedding dress. They have a sledgehammer just laying out on the table. Uh, again, you know, looking like it's ready for if they need to 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 get rid of a body. And they apparently have an almost full jar of lighter fluid. Is it lighter fluid or is it gasoline? It's it's it's, it's just. I, I wrote down gasoline, but I wouldn't fucking know. It, it, I'd never kept a loose jar of flammable liquid hanging out on the steps of my basement. I mean, this is. I live on a concrete slab. So I well, I live in Ohio, and we definitely. All have that. I don't know about you. I mean, I don't know what you guys do out there, but over here, we definitely have booby trap, like, to go. We just get our little survival kit, and there we go. You never know. This isn't even, I mean, the basement... The basement isn't even set up to to capture Freddy. This is what it looks like all the time. (laughs) They just have a sledgehammer sitting out. And the only thing that could have made that, that could have made that better was, like, if they have, you know, a bag of lime next to it. (laughs) <laughs> maybe a hacksaw yeah that would be great um so nancy continues down into the bowels of her own basement turns out her dream basement is connected to freddie's nightmare basement and she manages in a very long sequence to finally find freddie's uh, kitchenette and find tina's crucifix later she finds glenn's bloody headphones uh and then finally Freddy appears, and here we're going to go into a very long chase. Uh, Freddy appears and tries to attack Nancy at several points, and Nancy somehow ends up uh, falling off of the stairs and then magically appearing into the front of her house and landing on those discarded rose bushes and trellis. Um, So no one's been cleaning that shit up. Maybe that's why Glenn's parents aren't so... (laughs) keen on her that no one's cleaning up that front fucking lawn it's gross it's, it's bringing down uh property values and that's why people don't like you that's super midwestern so i have no quarrels against that <laughs> sounds reasonable to me listen in california we are very obsessed with their property values. <laughs> uh and so um this is uh where freddie appears uh, out of those rose bushes uh, just as Nancy's countdown watch says she has mere seconds to go. So she goes in for a diving tackle. The alarms go off and she is pulled out of her dream with some rose bushes, but no Freddy necessarily. But wait, he's hidden himself in a very dastardly location. The other side of the bed. It's not it's not a big hiding place. He's just like literally inches away from her. I love the next uh, chase scene that ensues because uh, it goes perfectly with the Benny Hill music, <laughs> which <laughs> several years ago I was watching some video and someone made a short clip of it. And I was like, oh, that's funny. So then I put the entire thing to the Benny Hill music and it just goes perfectly. So it is up on YouTube. If anybody wants to go look at it, it's a good time. Just the saying, only, it's awesome. The only thing missing is a small, bald man to smack repeatedly on the back of the head of. Um, <laughs> That's Glenn's dad. I'm just kidding. And so uh, here we're going to have a lot of back and forth. But the nice thing about this is, is Nancy is the one who's getting in all the licks. First of all, Freddie takes a coffee pot to the noggin to start off this brawl. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> 
And then Nancy yells out the window to this, uh, this local yokel, get my dad, you asshole. And I love it. Oh, I, love I love it so much. And, and, and he's still, and he's still standing there like, well, should I, maybe I should, and I don't know. I probably should have It's not strange enough yet. We'll wait. <laughs> Listen, on the strange scale, this is coming in at a low three. What the <laughs> fuck kind of neighborhood is here? Um, so, uh, uh, Nancy uh, locks Freddie in her bedroom uh, because now Freddie is in reality. He has to operate according to our rules for now. Uh, and she locks him in, sets up the sledgehammer trap, runs down the stairs and starts yelling at the sergeant to get his fucking ass in gear. Crazy shit is happening. Still not listening. Freddie breaks out of the bedroom, takes a shot from a sledgehammer to his sternum that causes him to fall backwards from the second story. Uh, so reality is not going his way so far. Uh, Freddy takes a tripwire gunpowder explosion to the back and what looks like it singed the fuck out of whatever, whatever stuntman happened to be there. Uh, and then this is when Nancy bursts out yet another window and yells to that same beat, cat, beat cop, <laughs> like, get the fuck over here. And he says, maybe I better tell the lieutenant. <laughs> oh, you think? You think the explosion in that house is the time to let that that girl's father know something is happening in the house? Yeah, I mean, God oh. knows she's broken so many windows. She's broken three fucking windows to say, get the fuck over here. But that, sixth win- oh. that sixth window really just tore it. <laughs> it was when she put now the little horse the through the window that he was like, oh, not the horse. <laughs> And so uh, we, I guess this this predates uh, prom night two. So my question to you, Gina, is this the first introduction to fuck horse? Um, no, I, I don't. I don't think oh. so. It, it's just used as a as a you know as something to to break a window. It's not you know used to disturbing sexualized uh, means. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I wanted fuck horse. To no, be fu- fuck horse is a fuck horse is a, is a singular. There's never be another <laughs> fuck horse. You say that now, Gina, and you're calling down the thunder. One of these days, we're going to come across another fuck horse. <laughs> I pray for that day every <laughs> night. I, I pray for blessings upon my family and friends, and I, and I pray that, that someday I shall lay eyes upon another fuck horse. <laughs> uh, so Nancy then uh, goes downstairs to the basement where uh, she turns off one light bulb in an act of uh, distraction, I guess. Uh, she come, she she flanks him on a six and manages to grab that loose uh, glass container of gasoline that we were discussing, smash it into Freddy's chest, and then light an entire box of matches. Not a match, a box of fucking matches, and throws it at him, and he is on fire. And so we get another full body burn, something we've seen a couple times in the course of our show. But um, in terms of quality body burns, let's put it this way. The stuntman who is acting as Freddy here has to wear a lot of protective gear and he should, no one should ever be hurt making something as stupid as a movie, but he does look like Freddy has a bit of a peanut allergy. He suddenly gets very puffy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, Freddie's pretty, pretty upset. He's you know kind of roaring and screaming. But I'm thinking, you know, how much more burnt could he possibly get? <laughs> uh, that is a good question. Uh, another insane uh, murder basement detail. When he passes by, 
there's a white bust of some sort of clown slash joker with makeup on it sitting on top of a Jack Daniels box. I have no idea what this fucking thing is. We barely see it. It's still crazy looking. Um, And as Freddy makes his way up the stairs, yelling the entire time, uh, Nancy's able to clock him in the face with the basement door. He's still on fire. He rolls down and you see him get up to try to get back up the stairs. And at this point, the amount of Nomex fire retardant clothing that this stunt guy has to wear has made Freddy into something like maybe he ate that one blueberry gumball from Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. (laughs) He's very chunky. (laughs) He looks like the lost member of the fat boys is what I'm saying. (laughs) I think you're exaggerating a a little bit. He's very large (laughs) in comparison to how he was in every other part of the movie. It's like a toasted marshmallow. When you light it on fire, it just gets bigger. (laughs) He's blowing up the various gases inside of him. Ooh, Freddy gases. Yeah, listen, you don't want to be stand too close to Freddy gases. Uh, That's a problem. Uh, This causes finally Lieutenant Thompson and three of Elm Street's finest to break down the fucking door and see what the fuck is happening here. Uh, Nancy, of course, is very happy to see them. But in in all the turmoil, it turns out Freddy has escaped the basement. When Nancy turns into the kitchen, she sees something. And I, I'm sure I've seen this time and time again, but it just registered as, as a cool detail. You see Freddy's burning footprints through the living room and up the stairs. And I, I kind of love that. That's like, a cool, that's a, a low budget that's movie. a cool effect. It's really cool. I, I, I don't know why I, I, it's not the first time I've noticed it, but uh, I just, I thought that's, that's really an attention to detail that makes this more real than it would seem otherwise. Uh, it turns out that Freddie has gone upstairs. Um, I initially thought maybe it's to return to Nancy's bedroom. No, 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 no. He's gone to Joyce's bedroom. And when Lieutenant Thompson and Nancy finally break down the master bedroom door, they find Freddy still on fire, attempting to choke Joyce out. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a this, he has a finger glove, right? Th- this is a yeah, oh, he's oh. shredding her, and she's burning, and yeah, I think he's just kind of holding him. I, I think he's just kind of holding her down while she while she burns. Yeah. But the, the, this scene always struck me as, as a little amusing because it kind of looks like a little bit like an Iron Maiden video or like, we're like, <laughs> you know, you've got like, like, uh, you know, lightning striking from somewhere and you got a lot of dry ice and, 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 jo- and Joyce's charred corpse slowly lowers down and, and, and Mr. Thompson looks mildly perturbed. <laughs> he, he just kind of... Like, he just kind of looks like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't have to pay those, uh, you know, I guess my divorce sort of is really finalized. Does this I mean I get the house really, back? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd be wondering, I guess. Um, this whole sequence is nutty. Nancy clocks Freddie over the back with a chair like they're in a, uh, an old saloon barroom brawl. And Lieutenant Thompson smothers Freddie. And then the reveal of they pull the blanket back and apparently Joyce has been pulled into, I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a giant phantasm chasm in her bed and she slowly 
And you can tell it's slow because she shakes a little with the hydraulics. She's got that one hand raised up in the Shakir's pose. You I love the one hand. You, you did this. <laughs> you caused this. And then disappears into her own bed. This is going, I would say this would be hard for any police lieutenant to explain <laughs> to his fellow cops as to why his wife disappeared. But then again, there's no fucking body. So I don't know. Well, this is wild. Well, this, I mean, this uh, scene, though, when I was a little girl and, and A Nightmare on Elm Street would come on TV, it would always be the scene when Crispy Joyce is going into <laughs> what you said, the phantasm chasm. Uh-huh. And it always terrified me. So then again, I was young. Didn't watch horror. Super scary today. Still have a little bit of PTSD. But yeah, it's like the moment in the movie when you're like, I thought she pulled him out of the dream. What happened here? Why is she in the bed? And then the bed is a bed again. And there's Mm -hmm. no lightning and thunder and fog. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you just get really confused from this point to the end of the movie. Yeah, I don't understand this point. Was she knocked unconscious? Like what, what is, I don't, the rules have gotten wonky here. Because I've understood everything that's happened until this moment. I understand that Freddy can just exist on fire for long periods of time. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. It's the end of this crazy dream murderer movie. But how he's able to suck her into the bed, poltergeist style, I, I didn't know that that was a power he had. That's We're forecasting where he would go, I guess. This is the first time we see a really crazy supernatural well turning someone into a blood fountain is also kind of supernatural too so what the fuck do i know yeah but that's yeah that happened in 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 glenn's dream so i mean that's that's that existed in a in a although you know whatever he did to him in the dream you know i mean he still you know turned into to to you know a blood log flume yeah he's double whipped uh, when he comes out of there for whatever, however that works. Um, but we're not over yet. Um, Lieutenant Thompson seems okay with having his ex-wife disappear into some sort of ghost uh, space inside of her own bed uh, and is very put together, uh, gives Nancy a hug. And why wouldn't you? Uh, she's traumatized from seeing her mother disappear into her own bed. And says, and she goes, I'll be down in a minute. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, well, all right, I guess I'll just leave you here. My my 16-year-old yeah, like, daughter. But she can already sense something's up. Yeah, I, I've, got some, so, I've got some paperwork I have to file. <laughs> oh, my God. He's going to be typing for so long, trying to tell people how his ex-wife is dead. Well, where's the body, Lieutenant Thompson? Uh, in the netherworld? I think it's the netherworld. Well, I think he's going to, I think he's going New Jersey. I, th- I think he's kind of hoping that, that everybody will be so distracted by trying to figure out what happened to Glenn that they won't even bother, you know, addressing <laughs> poor Joyce. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wacky one. Uh, so, but Nancy senses that this isn't quite over. Whatever has happened here, it's not over. And so she hears, a slight laugh in the background. And this is where she gets to finally tell Freddie, 
I'm done with this. Every ounce of energy that I put into you, I'm taking back. And she turns her back on Freddy, as we have been told not once but twice by the movie, that she must do. And as Freddy lunges for her, he becomes one with the universe. He becomes a star child. Well, he also they, they also re kind of to you know, from a different angle, kind of recycle the whole when he's kind of pressing his way into uh, to Tina's bedroom wall. He yeah. when he rises out of the mattress. And, and and he kind of looks like when um, Howie Mandel used to that trick where you pull a uh, a, a you surgical glove, glove over, over his over head. head. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't quite work as well here as as the same effect coming out of the wall. I, I don't I don't know why. Again, because it makes me think that like, he looks like a penis with a condom on it. I don't know. <laughs> it's just it's a little his weird. Voice is way deeper than it has. Yeah, the entire movie. Yeah, his voice is very very tweaked at this point. Like like. He doesn't, as as we all know at this point, he he doesn't talk as much in this one as he will in 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 future movies. And, and of course, you know a lot of his you know, dialogue, and this is a lot of grunting, growling, and chuckling. But yeah, he goes from a, a you know somewhat gruff speaking voice to like this like Buffalo Bill level speaking voice, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and it's like, oh well, maybe he's got some like. Uh, what do you call it when you when you uh, smoke inhalation? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he has been burning for two and a half minutes straight. So, like, that does something to your vocal cords when you've been breathing in that amount of smoke. As anyone knows who's been lit on fire, you can't breathe in because your lungs will actually burn. Well, who among us uh, has so not? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are the things you learn when you light people on fire at Waterworld. So, uh, yeah, light some people on fire at Waterworld. You'll learn all sorts of secrets. Uh, so uh, Nancy leaves the bedroom, but exits out her front door. With a perfect commercial. With a perfect French braid. I, I just like, I was just like, oh, God, it's killing me. Perfect French braid. <laughs> yeah. So she goes Flawless. from that mass giant mountain on top of her head to this perfect French brand. You're like, oh, her hair's back and it's all neat. Everything she must, must be have okay. rose, She must have risen at dawn to, to just get all that hair into that braid. Not not a strand out of place. No, there there is a legion of, of, of women hanging outside of, of a queen subway stop that could do that. And it would take several hours to accomplish. Um, and so... We're in a sort of a mysterious world. The the bars are gone. The rose bush and, and, and trestle are back in place. Nancy is dressed like she's in a traveling Easter circus. And Joyce appears to be wearing a dress from the the brood line of tunics. It's a it's an interesting outfit. Yeah, she she I, I like the way that she's casually announced. I think I'll just stop drinking. Yeah. yeah, it's like, mm. <laughs> Nancy, I mean, Joyce, you were, you were stashing Costco-sized bottles of booze. You're not going to stop <laughs> drinking one day. No, from what she hears, when you can't remember the night before, you finally hit bottom. And I've never heard that anywhere outside of this movie. <laughs> Me neither. I feel like most people in college probably are like, oh, man, I survived. Time for next weekend. <laughs> Uh, but somehow uh, this mysterious morning has now brought back not only Nancy's mom, but Tina, Glenn, 
that sweat hog that Tina has been sleeping with. They're all alive. And they're all in Glenn's custom pre-Christine Christine car. And they're all going to go to school together. So Nancy hops in and they all wave. And then the top comes down on that convertible very hard. And they all scream bloody murder. The windows come up all dirty. Oh, my God. Freddy's transformed himself into a car. Oh, my God. And then Freddy pulls what appears to be a very rubbery dummy Uh, a very small hole. This this is such it's such a good ending that's just absolutely marred by like it 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 honestly it looks like a blow-up doll. It 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 (laughs) really does. It's like I mean the effect of pulling her through this tiny window. I mean I realize that's you know obviously today with with CGI that would that would you know that it would that would work. But I mean, there was no possible. There was like practical things in the Blob remake that did this sort of thing so much better. Well, that you'd be like when the guy was like folded in half. Yeah, that that's a that's a really yeah that scene still messes me up. But no, it's we have to cover the Blob at some point. It's such a it's such a good shock and a way to end, especially when you when it like you know. You got that big, you know, loud jump noise, and then it pans over these creepy little girls and jump roping. But it's just like, oh, that fucking sex doll they use in the scene. <laughs> oh my god! Do it's you guys so think that the ending was? I mean, I know the end, the original ending that Wes wanted was kind of like a book ending. She defeated the monster, and then Bob Shea was like, "No, no, we got to set it up for a sequel if this does well." So. In your opinion, what do you guys think happened at the end? Do you think Nancy woke up? Do you think she's kind of like halfway between waking up, halfway like asleep, or does she never wake up? I think she's having a genuine nightmare Mm -hmm. that is not, that Freddie is not actually controlling. I think she's having a nightmare about what she experienced. Her mom is dead. Her friends are dead. Mm -hmm. And she's having a nightmare about it. Is, is, what how I'm going to justify the the existence of this coda? Yeah, I would say I would say this is all this is all her further dreaming. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and so, uh, to the tune of two one threes quote nightmare end quote, which is quite a song. Uh, wow. Uh, I thought the Coupe de Ville's. Uh, song for Big Trouble in Little China was a little out of step with the contents of the film. <laughs> Holy fuck! This is not a good song. This song really, it really could have used a a a, a folk song that just that, that describes the events of the movie that just happened, like 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 at the end of My Bloody Valentine. Yes! Oh my god, we need a My Bloody Valentine song here. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> uh, instead, we get these fucking jokers who are apparently in Los Angeles. I doubt it. Um, But, uh, oh boy. So how did you live your entire life and forget about the end song? How could you? I think think whenever, I don't know that I ever watched the end credits, I guess. I never sat through the Uh, end credits. I've always turned it off as soon as like the little girls stopped doing their little jump rope song. Because that's, that's genuinely creepy. I mean, you know, little kids singing stuff in a horror movie is always it's it's been done to death. But it's still it's still it's still, you know, it, it kind of like gives me a little uh, you know, it's it's still it's still effective, you know, even if it's been done ten gajillion billion times. Uh so it is that time for an old favorite to return. 
quite like a, a Jason jumping out of a lake or a Freddy uh, getting you in your nightmares when you finally think he's down for the count. It's time to choose your own nightmare venture. Uh, and that is where we decide of the deaths portrayed in this film, which one would we choose if we were forced to die that way? And why? Up for bid, we have sliced open while dragged up a wall and across the ceiling. Then we have hung to death in a jail cell, but at least you get shoes. Then you have turning into a blood fountain, skeletonized over a poltergeist pit in your own bed, and then let's add pull through a small door uh, to your death. Sure, pull through a small door to your death. And of course, Deandra, as our guest, we turn to you first for your answer. This is really not cool because all of these deaths would be awful. So I would have to say definitely not Tina for me because that seems painful, extremely mm. painful. Uh, Glenn, don't know what the heck happened to him. Don't want to find out. So I guess if I have to be if I have to be asleep, maybe 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 Joyce died in her sleep. I mean, you know, maybe she never woke up, I guess, and was just cut to pieces and burned. And then she went into the bed. I don't know. Who knows? But I guess if I have to pick one, even though it's a terrible, terrible way to go, I would say I would pick that over some of the other options because maybe I didn't feel anything. So it might be the safest option. Who knows? Okay. What about you guys? Well- uh, let's see, Gina, what say you? Oh, blood fountain all the way. It, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it has showmanship. It, mm-hmm. it, it will confuse people. Uh, mm. people will be talking about my death for years. <laughs> I, 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 I want, I, I, I would want people recording a podcast to, to try to ponder you know, what exactly rendered me to, to just, you know, a, a, a geyser. Oh, 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 blood just spraying out and covering every surface of the room I happen to be in at the time. I mean, that's what a way to go. Yeah. Uh, as always, Gina, you've read my mind. I'm totally going blood fountain because aside from the shock of being pulled into your own bed, whatever's happening to you happens so fast to get all of your body juices out of you. You can't be feeling much after that. Plus, I will have gotten to have watched the Miss Nude World contest. <laughs> Yeah, but, but you established. But you also have to sleep with the with the television balanced on your balanced precariously on, on your on, on your, your on, my on your crotch. But but it's not like I'm having kids later on. I'm becoming a blood fountain. <laughs> so I think it's okay that all of my uh my groin is irradiated by that that <laughs> the remote television <laughs> burning its way through my velveteen sweatpants <laughs> into my uh very delicates. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough as it goes. Okay. So that, listen, we hate to say goodbye, but before we go, we have to do some plugs. So, uh, Deandra, uh, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing Nightmare on Elm Street wise? Let me just get out my list here. I'm I'm kidding. Um, You guys can check out Elm Street Radio on YouTube. Um, It's also on iTunes, but we're kind of switching some stuff around. So don't go there just yet. Go right on over to YouTube while the rest of it is still in construction. We're also on Twitter and Facebook with Elm Street Radio. Fredhead's the documentary, of course, on Facebook. 
Instagram and Twitter. And it is a documentary all about the Nightmare on Elm Street fans. And uh, I am everywhere and anywhere as Sassy Sledgehammer. So you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm also on Twitter, except I'm missing an A and an E. So it's just Sledgehammer on Twitter. And uh, I hope you guys will come talk Nightmare with me because God knows that's the only thing I do with my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Do it today. People check it out. Hey, Gina, uh, where can people find you on these here internets? I write about old television and movies and other sundry pop culture stuff on my own website at ginaradcliffe.com. I am also a writer for um, the newly launched website called The Spool, which should be, which should be, live by time uh by time this episode is available uh formerly alcohol hollywood so you can see my reviews of uh season of true detective of um and of uh the mods mickelson movie polar which is a gigantic piece of shit and and <laughs> if you want to see me do a hatch a real hatchet job on something yeah I, I suggest you read that particular review um and i am also on twitter under porcelain 72 do it today people check it out uh hey gina uh what's happening over on patreon uh well again by the time this episode airs we should i i i do air quotes should have our next patreon bonus episode available which will be just in time for valentine's day Candyman, oh, a, a, a love story for the ages. Um, he's full of love and bees. He just, you know, he just and wants candy. to get it and, and candy, and he just wants to and 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 hook hands. <laughs> um, if you want to hear that episode, uh, you if you're not already a Patreon donor at the uh five dollar level. Um, you can sign up that today. You can hear that episode. You can hear past episodes. We have done um, the acid tab of a movie known as The Visitor. Um, we've covered Mandy uh, and um, uh, The Apostle. Uh, we've got yes. some pretty interesting choices coming up. We also, at the $10 level, allow you the chance to pick a movie for us. So uh, try $5, try $10, just try any dollars. Yeah. Uh, oh my God! Yeah, it, please do it today. It's worth your time and ducats. But you know, not everyone has that kind of loose change, loose change swinging around in their pocket. How can you support us uh, outside of Patreon uh, if you don't happen to have the money? You can help hype us on your social media feeds, whatever they may be when a new episode comes out. You can also rate and review us on whatever podcatcher you have available to you, especially iTunes, because that helps us be seen and heard by more people. So please do it today. If you tell us what your favorite kill is in the Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th franchise or any of the films we've covered, we'll talk about it here on the air. That is our solemn promise to you, the Kill by Kill listener. But don't worry, folks, the body count will continue. When we return, we're going to do a bonus episode before we get to Freddy's Revenge. And oh, my God, you will not believe this particular film. This is a one wild ass ride. It's two movies in one. And the first one's super gross. It's a little ditty we like to call the Amityville Horror 2, The Possession. Holy shit. I'm Gina, ready. My body's what? ready. 
the things that people can look forward to in this one are all gross and all weird. And then for the second half of the movie, it kind of becomes the Exorcist SVU. But but it also has has uh, 80s all over favorite Burt Young in it. <laughs> he is uh, like a, a dust bunny got rolled into bacon grease and gained sentience with a hat. He is he is a shaved gorilla. Oh my god. He is a living embodiment of scuzziness that you also kind of want to hug, but when you pull away, a film comes with you. If if he was a Dick Tracy villain, his name would be the Hoagie. (laughs) Oh, look forward to all of those insults of what appears to be a very lovely man. Uh, (laughs) In our next episode, uh, for, for a bonus, and then we will get to... Uh, Freddy's Revenge. So until next time, the body count will continue for myself, for Gina, and for Giandra. Bye-bye, everybody. Kill by Kill is produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. A Nightmare on Elm Street is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill's logos were created by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.